0: Good morning. If you would grab a Bible, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 36. Isaiah 36, we'll be spending our time, all of our time this morning in this part of our worship in Isaiah chapter 36 and a little bit in chapter 37. So if you would get a Bible out and open to that place. Good to see you this morning. Good to see visitors. As always, we want you to know that we're happy you're here. And we want you to feel welcome. And we'd love to get to know you and talk to you. And if there is anything we can do to help you in any way, we'd love to know about that. But we're mainly just glad that you're here. So thank you for taking the time to visit with us and to worship God with us. Isaiah chapter 36, beginning in verse 4, the text says, Isaiah 36 and verse 4, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? I want to take some time this morning. And look at this text to talk about a topic you might not see fitting readily with it. I want to take some time this morning to talk about doubt. Doubt is a reality in our lives. Probably all of us go through series seasons in our lives where we deal with doubt. And especially young people in particular go through periods of doubt. And sometimes they find it overwhelming. Sometimes it is the intensity of doubt that is a real challenge to us. So I want to especially suggest to you that doubt usually is not purely intellectual. It's not just a problem where we can't make sense of something. Usually, doubt is an emotional problem, and it deals with the feelings we have that we aren't sure we can cope with. And so emotion and intellect all roll together in one. And what I want to do this morning is to look at this text where there is a man whose goal in the text is to sow the seeds of doubt. And I want us to talk a little bit about what it is doubt feels like. I want us to explore the dimensions of that. And there are some reasons I want to do that. I want to do that, first of all, so that we can have an awareness of doubt. So that when this happens to us, we realize what's happening. This is what it feels like when we begin to slip and begin to doubt and question. Part of this sermon is also about help for those who are beginning to feel and experience doubt... ...so that you know that what's going on with you is something that happens to all of us... ...and you can seek help from those who can help reaffirm some of those things about your faith. And part of it is just about the commonality of the process... ...so that when we get through with this lesson, we should all understand, I felt those things before... And when I feel them again, I know I'm not different. I'm just like everyone else. And I know that this is exactly how this happens. So let's set our context for Isaiah chapter 36. This is the time period in which Assyria is the major world power. And Assyria, the king of Assyria, is frustrated with the king of Judah, Hezekiah. And the reason is the king, Hezekiah, has made a treaty with the king of Assyria. Now he is backed out of his treaty and has sought help from the king of Egypt and so Sennacherib the king he comes knocking on the door of Judah along the way he captures Israel the northern kingdom and takes them into captivity and now he begins to take city after city in Judah and he comes up to Jerusalem and this is his emissary this man called the Rabshakeh and he begins to threaten the king and the officials and also the people of Jerusalem, And that is what we're reading in chapter 36. This is, as Isaiah describes it in another place, the water is rising up to the neck. This is a dangerous time for the kingdom of Judah. Are they going to fall just like the northern kingdom fell? What's going to happen as they see this superpower now zeroing in on them? Isaiah 36 and verse 1, it says... In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff... ...which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God... ...is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed... ...saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria... I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshaka, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. For he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim? Had they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all these gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah. With their clothes torn, and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. It's quite a speech, isn't it? The Rabshakeh's goal is to instill doubt, and I want us to see what that sounds like and feels like. First of all, doubt feels like insecurity. That's what he is trying to get them to feel. He wants to point out just how perilous their position is. Now, I think that most of what he is going to say, the Israelites already knew. After all, they saw the great big army. Okay, It's hard to miss. And they know that that this army has already taken over a whole bunch of the cities of Judah, as well as most of the lands between Assyria and Judah. They know this. So it's not as if this is new information, but there is just something about it when people are bullies and they come and they point out just how insecure you are in sort of a taunting tone that really, it really makes you feel your own insecurity. And so he says in verse 4, in in chapter 36 of verse 4, thus says the king, the great king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? In other words, I mean, come on, look, we're Assyria and you are Jerusalem. Uh, This is not a fair fight. So you've got to be trusting that something else or somebody else is going to help you because you surely can't do it yourself. And so he begins to, to just sort of tick off the options. Are you, you trusting in Egypt? Egypt's not going to get it done for you. Egypt never gets it done for anybody. Oh, are you trusting in God? Well, well, there's a problem with that. Did you see that down uh, in verse 10? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Perhaps the Rabshakeh had even heard of some of Isaiah's own prophecies. Where Isaiah in chapter 10, for example, says that God is going to use Assyria to judge. Maybe he had even known that, that this was going around, that maybe Assyria's coming was judgment against Judah. And so he says, you know what? God told me, Jehovah God told me, to come take over your land. And also in verse 7, he's also aware of this in verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he who's high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? He's referring to some of the reforms Hezekiah had put in place where he said, no, we were going to worship in Jerusalem where God wants us to worship. The rabbi knew about that too. And he says, there must have been some dissent among the people because he says, you know... How are you going to worship God when you've torn down His altars? Is He going to save you? Surely not. Stay where you are, He says, and you'll do nothing but eat your own byproducts. It is an awful description of how bad things were. So doubt feels like insecurity. It feels like we begin to question Maybe internally, or maybe due to outside forces, the things that we have long believed and accepted, the things that we have trusted, and we wonder whether maybe we've been deluded. We begin to look around and we see all the things around us that don't reflect God and the glory of God, and conveniently ignore, by the way, all the things that do when we're in this mode. And we begin to look at the situation in the way that the doubters pointed out. And we begin to say, you know what? How am I going to stand up to this? What am I trusting? What can I depend on? And we begin to wonder, well, I don't know about God. I mean, after all, we did tear down some of God's altars. And after all, you know, God's not always dependable to be there right when I think he should be. And, you know, what about Egypt? You know, we did do this whole thing with Egypt, but, but they're not anywhere here to protect us now. And so we begin to feel exposed and weak. And the more we focus on our situation, the more we begin to ask, just what am I relying on? And in such situations, we become particularly vulnerable, especially especially when we have someone pointing out our insecurity when we already feel it. That's what doubt feels like. It begins with a feeling like insecurity. Second, doubt feels like isolation. This is where insecurity leads. We begin to feel alone. We begin to feel as if there's no one there to help. Who will defend me? Who will provide for me? I guess it's just me. And so as we do, we begin to focus on our own insecurity And our own weakness. So maybe I just need to worry about saving my own skin. Not worry about all you people. Not worry about God. Not wait on Egypt. I just need to take care of me. And I think that's what's behind the Rabshakeh's offer. Look again in verse 14. In verse 14 it says, Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord shall surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each drink of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Now, surely they had to think that's not really going to happen. But what the rabshack is doing is saying, hey, anybody want to come out? Things will be great. You won't have to worry about being killed in the siege. You won't have to worry about whether God's going to let the city be taken. You just come on out. We'll give you a sweet deal. You just save your own skin. Don't you know that was tempting? To say, you know what? Things are rough in the city. And during an ancient siege, they were only going to get rougher. Where food and water become more and more scarce. So why don't, you just, why don't you just save your own skin? Why don't you just take care of yourself? Let the city, what, whatever happens to the city, be whatever happens to the city. But, but I've got to take care of me. Verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sefervaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? What God can save you? I'm not going to be a God to save you. You are alone. Gods don't help against a war machine like Assyria. They haven't yet, and your God won't either. Doubt feels like isolation. This is a little bit like a predator in the wild who tries to hunt by isolating one of the animals from the pack. We're not as strong alone as we are together. And when we begin to think that maybe I am alone, and maybe no one is around to depend on, then doubt grows. And we begin to think, well, maybe I just need to do what's best for me and save my own skin. And forget all those other people who I have depended on in the past. One of Satan's most powerful tools is to isolate Christians from other Christians. Have you noticed that God has never, from the beginning of time to today, encouraged people to be and live alone? He has created families. He has created nations. He has his own nation in the Old Testament. He has created his church. He wants people to be with people because we need people. But one of Satan's greatest tools is to try to isolate us from other people and thereby make us weaker. And we need to notice that when we start to feel this sense of isolation that Satan is at work. When we begin to think that no one is like me, No one understands me, that no one else is really sincere, that nobody else is thinking about their faith, that nobody else has really ever gone through what I'm going through. What we are expressing is that we feel alone, and as people who feel alone, we are more prone to doubt. And if Satan can use those opportunities to drive a wedge between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ, so much the better for him. It will be Satan then who insists there's no one we can trust in times of need, just like the Rabshaka. When we begin to isolate ourselves and to feel isolated, it's part of doubt. The third thing doubt feels like is inability. Inability. When we're alone, we know we're in trouble because we're, again, limited by our own ability. And I want you to notice how the rabshackle tries to instill that sense in them. Look in verse 8 of chapter 36. Isaiah 36 and verse 8. He says, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? He says, you can't even put men on all of our horses. We've got more horses than you have people. He says, I'll give them to you, but you can't even put people on them. What he's saying is, what can you do? Why would we be afraid of you? How can you even stop one of our captains, much less the entirety of this army? And in verse 14, he says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. He's not going to help. What can you do? When we talk about inability, what we're talking about is that sense that each one of us has, that deep down we are really well acquainted with our own flaws and weaknesses. We are all flawed, we are all weak, and we all know it. And what we feel when we feel inability is that feeling that we know that there are so many situations in life that we are unable to handle on our own. We know it. Sometimes we feel that in harsh experience. That we are not equipped with what we need for the tasks that we face. Now part of this is good. When we talk about inability and we talk about what our weaknesses are. Part of that is good because part of that is biblical. When Jesus teaches us to remember that we are poor in spirit. When Jesus teaches us to say, coming before God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus teaches us that it is right and good for us to think of ourselves like little children. So we need to know that we're not capable in and of ourselves because that's what leads us to reach out to God. But what inability does in this sense of doubt is that that humility turns to despair. So we say, you know, I just can't do it. I can't do it. I might as well give up. What's the point? Maybe that is an intellectual thing. We say something like, you know, I just can't figure this out. I'll never be able to understand the Bible. I'll never be able to figure God out. I just can't do it. And so we begin to doubt. Maybe this is the emotional side of processing some hardship. And we say something like, you know, I'll just never be able to get over that. I just can't. I just can't forgive. I just can't understand them. I just can't see them ever again. Maybe it's a struggle with sin that just continues to overwhelm us to the point where we just give up and we say, you know what, I just can't do it. When we look at ourselves, we see inability. And in the wrong frame of mind, doubt grows when we focus on our inability, So what is good in one frame of mind and comes across as humility, when we begin to doubt, it becomes despair. So doubt feels like insecurity, it feels like isolation, it feels like inability, and it feels like impossibility. Some things are just really, really hard to believe because they seem impossible. It seems like too much. And often, the devil attacks our faith with this sense that the unlikely and the impossible just don't happen anymore in our world. That we can understand everything that happens and explain it in clear scientific terms. And so the idea that something that's not what normally happens would happen is deeply challenging to our faith. Look with me in, in Isaiah 36 and verse 18. Verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us? Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. This is just the way these situations work, he's saying. We have an awesome army. We are the most powerful nation on earth. It doesn't matter what God you serve. We're going to win. We got more people. Remember, we got more horses than you have men. What do you think is going to happen? The big guys beat the little guys. And that's the way life works. There's a kind of brutal logic in it. We know it. We recognize it because it's the, it's the logic of, of the world. That that's the way things work. It's the same logic that says there are no miracles in the world, that God doesn't intervene, that there is no hope in prayer. And to think that God would set aside the idea of Assyria, like the water rising up to the neck, it just seems far fetched. In fact, I want you to take a page, turn a page to Isaiah 37, and Isaiah 37 and verse 6. Isaiah 37 and verse 6. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Do you know what? Even when God says, don't be afraid, he's going to go home and he's going to die there. Even when God says that, it's still hard to believe. Because at this moment in time, Why would he leave? It doesn't make any sense. And so it is hard, even when God gives assurance that in this situation I'm going to intervene, it's still hard to believe because it just seems impossible. How would that work? Perhaps it is something akin to this. It's easy for us to read the Old Testament and to see, you know, God helped in parting the Red Sea. God helped when Joshua needed to conquer the cities of Canaan, and the sun stood still. And God helped when Elijah was there on Mount Carmel and called down fire from heaven. You know, yeah, God did some stuff in the past, but but that doesn't help me now. You see, that stuff is just impossible. It was an exception then, and it'll never happen today. And that's what doubt feels like. It feels like, a world yelling at us in the voice of the Rabshaka, saying, What you believe will never happen. That's just not the way the world works. And you're naive to think it would. And so we begin to doubt. There's another commonality that I want to point out that I see in what the Rabshaka says, and what I see in a lot of Christians today. A lot of Christians, a lot of times, even I struggle with this. We begin to doubt because we are intimidated. Because there are people who are in our face yelling at us about how stupid it is for us to believe what we believe. And there are people who are usually very intelligent and very well educated. And they can yell louder and talk longer than I can. And so it almost feels like, Who would I be to stand up to someone like that? They write books like The God Delusion and God is Not Good, trying to argue that somehow God is evil. I'm not sure exactly how that works. And they can ridicule with the best of them. I don't know how much you follow some of the things that they say. But they are sharp, they're strong. What this passage shows me is that's nothing new. That's the way Satan works. the way he worked back then. That's the way he works today. To try to intimidate us out of our faith by telling us the things we believe are impossible. And when it's me against them and God seems so far away and there's nobody else that I can really depend on and trust, and I know how weak and insufficient I am, and I know that what I'm believing is really outside the realm of possibility, that's what doubt feels like. Now, I don't want you to put your Bible up just yet. We're not done. Because this story doesn't end with doubt. And I want you to look in chapter 37 with me. In chapter 37, you see a response from Hezekiah the king Chapter 37 and verse 1, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. In verse 4, it says, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. He encourages the people to pray. In verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah is upset, but Hezekiah takes his upset and gives it to God. He prays. The beauty of this is that even the harshest doubt-sowers, they have to be quiet sometime. And there is a time for us to go to God and to talk to Him about what we have begun to feel because of the experience of interacting with them. We can remember then that God is concerned with what people say about Him, just like we are. And that God hears the insults people throw at Him, just like we do. And that God hears the cry of His people. And that God is always near to us. And that God acts to help, particularly. He acts to help in ways that we could never predict. And I want you to notice that Hezekiah pours out the same emotions that we've already observed. He talks about, in this prayer, in verse 18... Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands. You know, he's right about that, God. And that's scary. And verse 19, they have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods but the work of men's hands. Verse 20, so now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. This reminds me so much of another prayer we see in the Bible. It's the prayer of Jehoshaphat. I'm going to put it on the board here. In 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 12, he says... Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Great prayer. Do you hear it? We're powerless. We look at ourselves. We see exactly what they see. We're not going to win if it's just us. And we don't even know what to do. We don't have the first clue. You see, he's aware, he's humble, but, but that doesn't lead him to doubt God. Instead, that leads him to God. And he says, we don't know what to do. Can you help? We are powerless. You have power. And so I want to come to the major point that I'm trying to make this morning. We all feel the emotions of doubt from time to time. The question is, what do we do with these feelings? What do we do then? Do we let those feelings build doubt within us and tear down our faith? Or do we take those emotions to God and let them be fuel for our faith? What we choose to do about these emotions is the difference between spiritual life and death. Between turning away from God and clinging to Him. Especially, I want to say this to our young people. As you grow, you're going to feel these things. These emotions will happen to you. Your faith will be tested. Your friends are going to challenge you. Satan is coming for you. That's real. And I want to encourage you not to be surprised when that happens. And when you begin to feel these kinds of things, that is natural and that is a part of the maturation of your faith. But I want to encourage you especially to reach out to people with good spiritual priorities when that happens. I have to say, I've gone through periods of intense doubt in my life. And I don't know that I have ever reached out to people that could help me in those times. In those times, I isolated myself. And that just made it so much harder to figure it out and to come out of those things. I want to encourage you particularly to take those feelings to the throne of God the way Hezekiah, the way Jehoshaphat do. And I want to encourage you not to be intimidated when people get in your face. They are like the Rabshaka, and that doesn't mean they're right. Just because they're aggressive, or even just because they're physically successful, that doesn't mean they're right. It just means they're loud. Doubt is a remarkable challenge, but it doesn't have to be the end of our faith. In fact... When we emerge through doubt, we often have a stronger, deeper understanding of who we are and why we believe what we believe. And so it can be a growing process for us in a way that we could not have had without the doubt. And so I want us to think about this story and learn from it, how we respond. Would you pray with me about it? Oh God, our Father, we are so thankful to you for the time that we've had in your word. We're thankful for the example of Hezekiah and of your people in this time. And Father, we are often challenged in our faith. We're challenged by things that come from within us and things that come from without. And Father, often we're, we're startled by how strong those emotions are. And I pray that you'll give us peace through times of struggling and doubt. Help us to reach out to people that can help us and not to isolate ourselves. Help us to be on the lookout for others who are struggling. Most of all, Father, help us to turn to you for the answers that we need, for the patience that we need as we go through difficult times. Father, I pray that you'll sustain us and give us what we need so that we can be strong in our faith. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to come to the gospel and come to the Lord. We want to offer you the invitation of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. There is hope and peace and joy. There is forgiveness in Jesus. And so we want to offer this opportunity. If you are ready to give your life to Jesus, we can help you to do that. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and you're ready to turn away from sin and to become his disciple, you can be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away. We'd love to help you do that. And if there's any way that we can help you to be right with God, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.